I tell you what, my heart gets so full when I listen to them sing. Sometimes I just want to keep singing. And there's a, as Brother Mark was leading us in a wonderful new arrangement of that dear old hymn, I just couldn't help but think of an old chorus I learned years ago. You may not know it, but you'll know it quickly. So just listen one time, then you can join in. Rain, Jesus, rain. Rain, Jesus, rain. King of Zion, Judah's lion. Rain, Jesus, rain. Would you sing that with me? Rain, Jesus, rain. Rain, Jesus, rain. King of Zion, Judah's lion. Rain, Jesus, rain. Come on now, church. Rain, Jesus, rain. Rain, Jesus, rain. King of Zion, Judah's lion. Rain, Jesus, rain. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus because he first loved me. Do you believe that? Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. And then Ephesians chapter 4. I have two texts, if you can bear with me today. Exodus chapter 20, and then Ephesians chapter 4. So from Exodus chapter 20, we will be reading the third commandment. Beginning in verse 5, excuse me, verse 7, which says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished, who takes his name in vain. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Now, if you would find in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, it's what Paul says. Let no, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Then look down at chapter 5 and verse 3. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The Christian and profanity. The Christian and profanity. When you talk about movies from the classic era of Hollywood, the golden age of Hollywood, there's usually one movie that pops up on everyone's list of their favorite classic Hollywood movies, and that is Gone with the Wind. Based on, released in 1939, based on Margaret Mitchell's 1936 novel by the same name, based in my home, I grew up outside of Atlanta, the story revolves around Atlanta. There are many, many memorable scenes in the movie. Perhaps my favorite scene is what's simply called the library scene from the movie Gone with the Wind. Ashley and Scarlett are having a discussion, and Scarlett's in love with Ashley, but Ashley's going to go marry Melanie, and he talks about honor, and he has to keep his honor. And he leaves Scarlett alone in the room, and she throws a vase across the room, and it breaks in the fireplace. And Clark Gable, playing the part of Rhett Butler, sits up. And she calls him uh, not a gentleman for not letting her know that he was in the room when she was having this emotional scene with Ashley Wilkes. And Scarlett said, sir, you are no gentleman, to which Rhett Butler responds, and you are no lady, but I don't think I'm going to hold it against you. And I remember the scene, as God is my witness, I will never be hungry again. I remember the scene with thousands and thousands of soldiers spread about on the ground, the carnage of war. 
Hattie McDaniel was the first African-American to ever win a, an Oscar, and she won it as her supporting role in Gone with the Wind. It's a historic movie. Lisa and I have a small connection to Gone with the Wind and the whole romance of that era to this degree. 1988, when we, excuse me, 1987, when we started dating, we shared our first kiss at a place called Vinings Mountain. It's uh, uh, just above the whole Vinings area there outside of Atlanta. And supposedly it was up on top of this hill where we were standing that Sherman first saw the church spires of Atlanta in 1864 when the Union Army was trying to free the slaves. And it's on that spot that Sherman first saw Atlanta. It's on that spot where I first kissed Lisa in 1987. Sherman set Atlanta on fire. Lisa set my heart on fire. We have a connection with Gone with the Wind. But the most memorable scene in Gone with the Wind is the closing scene. And you know what happens. Oh, Rayet. Where, by the way, I didn't. I grew up in the South. I never knew anybody that talked like Vivian Lee in that movie. I, I just promise you, I didn't. But oh, Rayet, where shall I go? What shall I do? And we won't repeat the answer because we're in a Baptist church. But you know, frankly, my dear, and you fill in the rest. I have a very good friend whose family went to see that movie in 1939 at a theater in Houston, Texas. He said his mother and father and sister. He was. Uh, not born yet, but he's told this story by his mom and dad. His mother and father and sister put on their best coat and tie and dress to go see a movie at the, one of the great uh, movie emporiums downtown Houston. And they watched the entire movie of Gone with the Wind. And his parents said, in that huge theater about the size of this building here, when Clark Gable uttered that famous profanity at the end of Gone with the Wind, there was an audible gasp all around the auditorium. Well, we've come a long way from that, haven't we? Just this week, I looked up on the Billboard Hot 100, the top five songs in America. The number one song is a, by a guy named Post Malone. It's called Psycho, and I counted nine profanities in the lyrics. Number two is Nice For What by a guy named Drake. I counted another nine profanities if you count the racial slurs. Number Three is by a girl named Cardi B. I don't know who she is. And somebody called Bad Bunny. Okay. Song is called I Like It. Has at least seven profanities. And I, Bad Bunny says a lot of things in Hispanic, uh, Spanish. And so I have no idea. He may have cussed even more. Girls Like You by Maroon 5 is number four. It has one profanity. God's Plan by Drake has one profanity. 27 profanities in the top five songs in America. We've come a long way from an audible gasp with Clark Gable at the end of Gone with the Wind. I would like to remind you in 1965, Billboard's number one single for the year. It's really odd. The song never made it to number one in any particular week, but it stayed on the chart at a higher place than anything else throughout the year. And it was the number one single for 1965. Anybody want to guess what it was? Number one single, Billboard, 1965. Give you a hint. It's by Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs. Willie, who say it with me? Willie, bully, Willie, bully. And I mean, very prof the chorus is extremely profound because the chorus says, Willie, bully, Willie, bully, Willie, bully, Willie, bully, Willie, bully. That's deep, man. That's deep. But we've gone a long way from Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs and Willie, bully to all these different profanities that pop up in the top five songs. Things have changed. We have come a long way indeed. Someone defined profanity this way. This definition is not with me. The guy taught philosophy at Iowa State University over 110 years ago. Here's what he said at that time. Profanity can be called the exclamatory use of a word or phrase. Usually the name of a deity or connected in some way with religion, but it's not logically connected with the subject at hand. It's profanity. That's a pretty deep definition. I will give you Alan Branch's definition of profanity. There are 30 some odd thousand words in the English language. And yet we have people that come back to the same four or five over and over and over again. This is Alan's definition of profanity. Profanity is the attempt of a feeble mind to express itself forcefully. It's my definition for profanity. The attempt of a feeble mind to express itself forcefully. 
Well, Ephesians chapter 4 and 5 teach us that our language and speech communicate to other people where our loyalties lie. And they are an indicator of the degree to which the words we use are an indicator of the degree to which we are living under the Lordship of Christ. So today we're going to explore this idea, this ethical issue of the Christian and profanity. So we have five key ideas that I want you to take away. They're in your bulletin. You can follow along about the Christian and profanity. Number one, profanity dishonors God. We read it, Exodus 27. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It's an interesting phrase. And it really means that we should not use God's name in an unholy way. The word for take, when you see in uh, Exodus 27, Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That word take really carries the idea of lift up high. It's like you're throwing it. It's almost like you're tossing God's name out, lifting up. And then the phrase in vain, that's an interesting phrase. Shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It carries the idea of that little phrase in vain carries the idea of using God's name for no purpose or saying something empty or contentless. It's a little tricky to get the phrase into English from Hebrew, but we get some idea of what the phrase means, the exact same phrase using God's name in vain or using a, something in vain is used in Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 30 where Jeremiah criticizes Judah's pointless religious efforts immediately prior to the Babylonian exile. And he says to them, in vain do you make yourself beauty. They're beautiful. There's no point to it. There's no point to what you're doing. So to take God's name in vain means to lift God's name up, put it out in conversation in a way that is contentless, that is completely divorced from his holiness and his purity. I am discouraged when I meet young people that use God's name as an exclamation. Something happens, they say, oh my God. Uh, the Royals hit a home run, they say, oh God. Or the Chiefs fumble a football in the game and they say, oh God. Listen carefully. God is so infinitely pure and holy. He scintillates with righteousness. He is searing in the heat of his holiness. And if you have ever come near to the holiness of God, it changes the way you talk about God. And I'm concerned when I hear people that say I'm a Christian, but they use God's name as an exclamation. God's name is not used as an exclamation. When you get close to God, the holiness of God, you never use God's name the same again. And I will say with all gentleness and love, because I want you to grow in your walk with the Lord, it is almost invariably when I meet someone that tells me they're a Christian and they use God's name as an exclamation in my mind as a preacher. Here's what you got to know I'm thinking. You've got a, you have a lot of immaturity going on in your life if you think you can use God's name that way. Well, since nobody else will amen me, I'll amen myself. Amen. That's right, preacher. Probably means I'm plowing close to the corn. <laughs> calling God, this taking God's name in vain also means calling God as a witness for something he never authorized. Have you ever had someone tell you, God told me to tell you? You ever heard that? Oh, let me just tell you, let's, let me be honest. I've had a number of times in my life when someone has come to me with a message from the throne room of God for me. God told me to tell you. And I'm to the point in my life now when someone tells me that, I prepare for whatever follows to be basically something like this. You're the Antichrist. God told me to tell you that you're the beast. You got 666 tattooed on the back of your head. You're evil. You're Satan. And God told me to tell you this. I have never had someone come to me and tell me, God told me to tell you that I'm a jerk, that I'm really the problem here in the relationship no one's ever it's always branch is the problem God told me to tell you better watch out calling God's authority on something that God didn't give you the authority to say and sometimes when people use that line God told me to tell you it's really just an act of cowardness they don't want to tell you what they think so they try to dress it up in God language and that's taking God's name in vain you can take God's name in vain when you take an oath and you don't keep it I can't tell you the number of couples I've married that have gotten divorced. Stood at an altar, forsaking all others. I, for, I pledge my love to you. And you find out two or three years later, they didn't forsake all others. They got something going on on the side. They were taking God's name in vain. Do you understand that? I have them put their hand on a Bible. 
This is a covenant taking God's name in vain. It can be used to in a contentless way. Uh, taking God's name in vain can be when we call God's authority for something he never authorized us to say. It can also just be plain and simply cussing, attaching God's name to a profanity. I can't tell you the number of times in my life I've been disheartened when I've heard God's name used in the most vulgar and profane ways. It hurts. I love Jesus Christ. He's everything to me. And when I hear people degrade his name, attaching his name to profanity and to cuss words, it grieves my spirit in a very, very deep way. Taking God's name in vain. Have you ever noticed that we live in a culture where no one says, well, what in the name of Buddha? Well, what in the name of Confucius? What in the name of some Hindu saint? What in the name of Muhammad? They never say that. Whose name do they use? Blankety blank Jesus. Why is that? I've thought about it a lot because when you look at it, there's only one perfect person who ever lived. That's Jesus Christ. And that life that he lived pricks the conscience of every one of us because we realize in light of his holiness, we're not nearly as good as we think we are and we need a savior. And so one way we try to soothe the conscience is if we can defile the name of Jesus and attach some cuss words to his name, then we're kind of bringing him down to our level and we don't feel so bad about ourselves. Taking God's name in vain. So profanity disarms and uh, dishonors and defiles the name of God. Profanity dirties other people. Would you look with me at Ephesians 4, 29, first part of the verse. Not only does it defame God's name and defile God's name, it dishonors him, but profanity dirties other people. Look at chapter 4, verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such is, is good for edification. Let me talk about some words here. Let me give you a little background. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. That phrase is very interesting, lagosapros. It's the word translated unwholesome can refer to that which is spoiled or rotten or putrefied. So outside of the Bible, that word unwholesome is used to refer to fruit that has gone bad, to fruit that's rotten and it smells and it stinks and it draws the flies. In the context of Ephesians 4.29, it is used figuratively to refer to that which is harmful and tears down instead of building up. You get some idea of what the word unwholesome means. In Matthew 7, chapter 7, verses 17 18, the word is used to describe rotten fruit by the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what John Stott said about Ephesians 4.29, this whole idea of let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. Here's what he said. When applied to rotten talk, whether this is dishonest, unkind, or vulgar, we may be sure in some way it hurts the hearers. Lisa, I'm going to need that water. My throat is just about dry if I can. In some way, it hurts the hearers, and it dirties them. So do you get the idea that word unwholesome carries the idea of rotten? And so when you use vulgarity and you use profanity, you are dirtying the other people around you. Does this make sense? Let me give you this example. Can you imagine having a family get together or a business dinner or luncheon? And someone comes in with a bag of horse manure that they got right off the farm. I remember one time years ago, I was a pastor in North Carolina. I wanted to get, I had sandy, we had sandy soil there. And I, I needed a little something in it. And I read something from the county extension agent. And he said, you can mix some horse manure in there. It'll help your garden. So there's a guy named Bill Harrington ran a horse stable. near. It was a member of my church. He never came. but And so I, I went, to, went to him. I said, Mr. Bill, can I, uh, can I get some horse manure? He said, well, you know, the stalls haven't been mucked out today. If you want to do that, you can. So I backed my truck up there. And I got about half a load mucking out his stalls. And I was about to leave. He said, well, did you get all you want? And I said, no, I, I really need more. I want a whole truckload. He said, well, I got a whole pile of it right over there. You can go do that. That man's not dumb. He had me doing work for him, right? I was mucking out his stalls. But imagine if I'd taken a load of that manure that I had in the back of my truck that I put in my garden, and it did help. And I came in the room, and I just started throwing it on you. Just started throwing horse manure on you. Just tossing it all over the room. And everybody that was in there, I just tossed horse manure. Throw it here. Throw some there. Scattered it. And everybody's in there nice uh, khakis and their nice shirt and the guy's got on their nice button down collar for a date night and I'm just throwing dirt all over them throwing horse manure you say no one 
would be so uncouth and no one would be so unkind to other people as to throw manure on them at a, a dinner gathering or a party. How many people you've been around in your life, they show up at a dinner party, they show up at a gathering, they show up at a business meeting, and the first thing they start doing is throwing profanity out everywhere. Curse words left and right. Dirty jokes. Sexual in innuendo everywhere. Can I tell you what's going on when they do that? There's a whole lot more going on than somebody with a bad habit. Here's what happens. When someone uses that sort of language... What they're trying to do is set the agenda for the moral atmosphere of this conversation. So they want to set the bar as low and filthy as they can so they can pull everyone down to their level. Because if the conversation turns holy, if the conversation turns pure, if the conversation talks about righteous and good things, their conscience is going to be bothered by the holy conversation. And they're going to be pricked and they're going to realize I'm a sinner. They don't want that to ease their own conscience. They start throwing out those cuss words to try to lower the bar down to the lowest, lowest level. I've heard so much profanity in my life. I was a chaplain in the United States Army. Did you know that people use profanity in the military? Shocking. I know, right? Shocking, shocking. One time I was leading a Bible study over a place called Kuwaiti Naval Base, and we had a, a group of soldiers over there in base, and I had a Bible study going. There was this one guy, and he, um, he would cuss in Bible study. You have never led Bible study till you've heard major profanity in the Bible study. And all I can tell you is the Lord pricked my heart and said, Alan, you need to be patient with this guy. I'm working on him. Got it? He was not a Christian, but he showed up to the Bible study. And so I felt deeply moved in my heart not to say anything, and he would use cuss words, and he was not saved. About four weeks into the Bible study, he showed up at my office over at uh, Arif John, which is about 20 miles away, unannounced. He said, Chap, have you got a minute to talk, talk to you? I said, I sure do, specialist. Come on in and sit down. And we spent an hour and a half, and he told me his life story. And I, it would be inappropriate for me to tell you all the details. He shared those things in confidence. He was a broken guy, though. He'd grown up in a broken home. He'd experienced a lot of brokenness. Life had thrown him a lot of junk, right? And we spent an hour and a half talking about the grace of God and how God could work in his heart. And when we, he didn't trust Christ that day, but we had some really great gospel conversation about what Jesus can do in your life. And we got done hour and a half. We prayed together. We got done, and he got up. He said, Chaplain, I'm really glad I came over today. This has been really helpful to me. If there's ever anything I can do for you, you just let me know. I said, well, specialist, there's one thing you could do for me, and it was quiet. And he looked at me, and I looked at him, and he looked at me, and I looked at him, and I didn't say a word. And he said, I know, i got to quit cussing in Bible study. So, <laughs> um, but do you understand, that guy's lost. I don't expect lost people to talk like Christians. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is that, do you, this means yes. I don't expect lost people to talk like Christians. I have a lot of patience for young men like that. What is discouraging is when I meet people who say they're Christians, and you wouldn't know it by the way they're taught. One time a friend of mine, Jim Stockwood and I went to, the, Jim used to be an executive for Kraft, and I tell you what, he always got me free tickets to see the NASCAR races up at Kansas City, and I'm now a ruined country boy because Kraft had this whole suite up there. And I sat in there with all the free chicken wings and cocoa I could have and air conditioning, those headsets. I'm ruined for life, right? I'm not down there throwing chicken wings on the, on the Gordon fans anymore in the stands. But anyway, so it's, you have to experience that um, to know what I'm talking about. But one day, Jim had his pit passes, and a guy from another company, and he and I, they kind of knew each other, but he was with another company. He said, well, y'all want to go down to the pit? I'll give you a ride on a golf cart. So he had a golf This is awesome. And he is cussing a blue streak. And Jim and I are on the back of the golf cart facing the, toward the back. And he and another guy on the front. And they're just cussing, 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 cussing. I mean, just a string of profanities. And then out of nowhere, he said, well, my pastor was supposed to be here today. But blankety, blank, 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 he didn't show up. I'm a Christian. I would have never guessed it. Jim looked at me and I looked at him. My wife, when she started back to college in 2002, Maple Woods Community College, she uh, had some ladies that became study partners that were about her age in their mid-30s going back to college. And these women cussed and cussed and cussed and cussed. And Lisa's praying for their conversion. About six weeks into this study group, 
They start talking about the churches they attend, both of which I know and both of which are good Bible-believing churches. And my wife said to them, how can you use this kind of language and call yourself a Christian? And their response was, oh, it's just a bad habit. It's no big deal. Listen, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. You say, well, why is it a big deal? Just a word. Somebody said, well, why do they call golf golf? Because all the other four-letter words are taken. That's why. It's, uh, it's just a word. Write this down. Will you write this verse down? Matthew 12, 34. I'm quoting my favorite preacher ever. His name is Jesus. Here's what he said. For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The old King James says the mouth speaks from the abundance of the heart. Abundance of the heart. Overflow of the heart. It's a heart issue. When those words come out of your mouth... It's a reflection of what's in your heart. Adrian Rogers put it this way, what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. And listen, if your speech is characterized by vulgarity and profanity and sexual innuendo and dirty jokes, you need to take a long, hard look if you've ever had your heart changed. I don't want anybody to die and go to hell. I, I want everybody to go to heaven. But listen very carefully. This is a time for some deep introspection. If people listen to you talk every day, what would they say about who is Lord of your life? It's a heart issue. And it dirties other people. This is important time for introspection. The words out of your mouth indicate what's in your heart. And judging by your, your own speech, is Jesus Lord? Yes or no? Third, Profanity doesn't build others up. Look at the second half of verse 29. He starts out with a negative instruction. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Then he gives a positive word of instruction. But only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. So that it will give what? So it will give what? Give what? The theme of Ephesians is we are saved by. And now he's saying you use your conversation so that it gives. To build other people up. The theme of Ephesians is saved by grace. And when grace is in your heart, grace is what comes out of your mouth. That's what Jesus did at Calvary. They crucified him. He didn't curse. He said, Father, what? Forgive them. They know not what they do. Having put on the new man, we want to develop new standards of ethics in conversation. Proverbs 12, 25 says this, anxiety in the heart of a man weighs it down, but a good word makes a man glad. No one gets any encouragement today. People don't get encouragement. Everybody points out the negative. When's the last time a police officer ever pulled you over and said, man, I just want to tell you, you are driving so well today. You're driving, and you're not driving slow in the left-hand lane, which is a sin, but I mean, you're doing great. You're doing, no, that never happens, right? You get pulled over because you're going to get a ticket. I'm part of the problem. I'm part of this problem of discouragement. I grade with a red pen. I... Everybody grades electronically now. I steal papers and I print them off and I, ha I write red all over it. And when a student, I mean, I'm there looking at dangling modifiers and ending a sentence with a preposition and subject verb disagreement, and all these sort of things, just red, 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 red. And no one ever got a paper back from a professor with red all over it saying, oh, I can't wait to read this because what am I doing? I'm looking for what's wrong. And that's the way the world is. People are always pointing out what you did wrong. We ought to be the best encouragers. This city gets discouraged. There's gloom. There are people that are broken and discouraged, and they're thinking about ending their lives. Christians ought to speak grace. We have a desire to build other people up. We want to speak God's word into their life. We want to speak a word of encouragement. We want to speak a word to them that, that builds them up, lets them know that life's worth living. They don't have to... End it all. They don't have to find the answer in drugs and alcohol. You'll never find it in the bottom of a bottle or a smoking on something or in the bottom of a glass pipe. You're never going to find the answer there. Listen, I have run two marathons in my life, 2006 and 2007. I ran the Kansas City Marathon both those years, 26.2 miles. I have a Bible. If you ever decide to run a marathon, I have your memory verse for a marathon. You ready? It comes from Revelation chapter 22. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I'm just telling you, that's, that's what you need for running a marathon. But you know something about a marathon? Throughout the race route, 
wherever it goes through the city of Kansas City, there's people on the sidewalks. You know what they're doing? You're doing great. Keep running. Keep picking them up and putting them, putting them down. Okay, so just a bit of transparency. I did the first one in four hours and 49 minutes. The second one in four hours and 48 minutes. I ain't fast. But they were encouraging me. Nobody said to me, you slow man, yo guy, what are you doing out there? Are you trying along? Won't you just quit? Nobody said that. Everybody up and down the race course were saying, keep going, keep going, keep running. You're doing great. And when I crossed the finish line, I, just, I, I crossed the finish line, there was a whole crowd and they were all cheering and yelling and my family was there. And my wife and daughters didn't say, man, you're slow. They did not say that. They said, we're proud of you. You finished the race. Listen, there are people all around us. All they get is discouragement, and they need somebody to come along beside them and speak some grace into their life and say, man, hey, hang in there. Jesus Christ died for you. Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Jesus Christ can forgive you. Your life's not worthless. Your, wife's, your life is not empty and meaningless. You were created in the image of God. He has a purpose and plan for you. You hang in there. They need some encouragement. Christians ought to be the encouragers. We ought to be the people, people building others up, helping them grow in strength and grace. Profanity does not build other people up. Profanity not only doesn't build other people up, profanity defiles God's gift of sex. It defiles God's gift of sex. Look at verse 3. But immorality or any impurity... Two very interesting words. Some of you who know your Bible, some of you guys know it very well. You remember Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, the works of the flesh. You guys remember that list? The first two works of the flesh are the same two that he mentions in verse 3. Immorality or impurity. The word immorality is pornea. It's where we get our word pornography from. The word impurity uh, refers to any sort of filthiness or sexual impurity. And then notice what it says down in verse... Four, and there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting. The only time those three words occur in the Bible are right there. Filthiness is, it's only, they only appear here in the New Testament. When you take all these three together, this coarse jesting is filthiness, silly talk. One person described it this way. <clears throat> all three terms refer to a dirty mind expressing itself in vulgar conversation. Coarse jesting, that little phrase, coarse jesting, actually suggests double entendre with sexual overtones. Have you ever known someone that no matter what you said in a conversation, no matter how lighthearted or innocent it was, they would try to make it dirty, and they would try to take the thing you said and make it dirty? It's double entendre. My first job was working in a sawmill. My second job, I worked in a drugstore. My third job, I drove a forklift down in Atlanta off Marietta Boulevard. And I learned, I got married. I was married when I was 20 years old. I got married while I was working at that job, driving a forklift, loading trucks. And uh, we would sell a lot of supplies to contractors all around Atlanta. And I learned as a young man very early in my marriage that there were a lot of those guys I couldn't mention my wife's name around. You know why? No matter what I said, they were going to go to the gutter with it. And I didn't want them dragging this beautiful young woman I'd married down in the gutter. You see what I'm saying? Coarse jesting. Some of you know that guy. You've worked with him, right? Coarse jesting. It, it defiles God's gift of sex. Listen very carefully. God created sex for a purpose. He gave it as a gift to a husband and wife in marriage. One man, one woman in marriage. That's God's design. And it's sex within that context is a beautiful and a wholesome thing. But profanity almost always takes sex and makes it dirty. You know the late night comics. You know the stand-up comedians that come through Wichita and through Kansas City that we all hear about coming. And when you go hear one of those shows, invariably, what are they joking about? They're joking about, what are they joking about? They're joking about sex. And listen, sex is a holy gift of God. I'm, I'm bothered, as you are, by the revelations over the last year of the number of women who were horribly exploited by different people such as Harvey Weinstein and Matt Lauer and all these famous people who were exploiting women. You've heard the stories, the horrid stories. Matt Lauer had a buzzer where he could lock women in his office. 
And I'm, I'm, I'm a little concerned, though, because the Hollywood elite are morally indignant. And I would say they should be morally indignant about the way that those women have been treated. But here's my problem with Hollywood and that crowd and Madison Avenue and that crowd and their moral indignation. They produce film after film after film and rap music video and country music video and MT video after video after video and song after song after song pours out of these places and every one of them presents women as an object of sexual desire for men and a woman's only use is to give sexual gratification to a man. They objectify women. They degrade them. And then they wonder why, after they pour all that filth out on the culture, that men treat women in an ungodly way. Listen, if you treat sex cheaply, you will treat people cheaply. You understand what I just said? If you treat sex cheaply, you will treat people cheaply. And profanity defiles God's gift of sex Profanity not only defiles God's gift of sex, profanity deceives people about God and ethics. Would you look at verse 6? Let no one deceive you with empty words. Interesting phrase. In context, Paul is talking about sexual ethics. Specifically, the language we, the language we use shows our moral values and reflects our sexual ethics if you talk about sex in a dirty way, the assumption of everybody else is you have low sexual ethics. It reflects what's in your heart. Vulgar speech and crude sexual humor is really a way of saying that sexual ethics is a matter of moral indifference. December 25th, 2016, pop music superstar George Michael, used to be the lead singer of Wham! back in the day, died at the height of his career when I was just about out of high school I don't remember the exact year he released a song and the title of the song was I want your sex it is a vulgar song about all all this woman he's singing about in the song is good for is all you're good for is sex that's all he's singing about in the song I just want your sex don't care about you don't care about building you up, loving you like a, hus a husband loves a wife, like Christ loves the church. Nothing that noble. Just crude, raw immorality. Should it surprise you that someone who sings about sex in such a cheap way was arrested twice for public indecency trying to solicit police officers in public places? No, it shouldn't surprise you. He's held up as a hero of our culture. I'm telling you, he was a man with a dirty mind and a dirty mouth, and there's nothing good about it. If you, listen, there's a lot of things you need to do with this sermon. Some of you, you got an iPod list and a Spotify list needs to get cleaned up this afternoon. You've been listening to the world long enough. You can't pump into your blank, blankety blank, blankety blank, vulgar, vulgar, foul, foul, filth, filth, wretched sin over and over, hour and hour, hour and hour, and then, then expect to go live a holy life. Listen, I learned a long time ago, G-I-G-O, you know what that stands for? Garbage in. And you fill your mind full of this world and this world's filth? Listen, daddies, your children need a daddy that's listening to holy things. Your children need, listen, not everything on my iPod is, from, is a Christian song. I've got the weirdest playlist you'll ever hear. If you hit shuffle on my iPod, it's liable to go from the Gaithers to Leonard Skinner in one skip. I'm just telling you. So not everything on my iPod is Christian. But I try to use discernment. You hear what I'm saying? And you need some discernment. You can't load your mind with this world's filth and expect to live a holy life. i got to move to a close. Well, you see, there's reasons why I use these profanity. Preacher, reasons why I do it. You see, I get angry about things. That's just how my anger comes out. Jesus cleansed the temple. He had righteous indignation, and he was angry. He didn't use profanity. He quoted Jeremiah chapter 7. You'd made my father's house a den of thieves. He's quoting the Bible. We see, preacher, I have stress in my life. And I'm under a lot of pressure. And I've got a lot of anxiety. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Praying fervently, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass. The most anxiety any person's ever had on this planet. He didn't cuss. He prayed to the Father. 
Well, you see, preacher, I get, when I get in pain and life hurts, it just comes out in cussing. Jesus is on the cross. They have nailed him there. He has a crown of thorns. He has been beaten, and he did not use profanity. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It's a hard issue. I'm going to ask Brother Mark to come. We're about to have our invitation. The question of this whole message is not really about legalism. It's about what's in your heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, mouth, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So what's down in your heart? The speech and the language you use. Is it Jesus or is it something else? I want to ask every head to be bowed, never out to be closed. Brother Mark is going to lead us in singing an invitation hymn. Won't you listen carefully? There's some of you here, and if you're honest with yourself and honest with others around you, in your heart, there is just this sin factory that's pumping out filth. And the, what you need is a new heart. And Jesus Christ can give that. Jesus Christ today wants to give you a new heart. He wants to give you a new mind. He wants to change your life. So I'm going to invite you to come. Respond at the invitation. Take my hand. Say, Brother Alan, I'm lost. I'd like to be saved. I want that new heart. Some of you. You, you've been saved, but you've never been baptized in the way the Bible says. We invite you to come forward and give testimony. By The first step of obedience for a Christian is baptism. Some of you, you know this is a church God would have, have you unite with as we try to reach this community for Christ. Man, we're incomplete till you join with us. We invite you to come. I'm going to pray. Then after I pray, if you need to be saved, you need to be baptized, you'd like to unite with this congregation you come. Father, I pray that you would make our speech and our mouths and what comes out reflect what's in our heart. And I pray that what's in our heart would be Jesus Christ. I pray for me, God. Help me to talk about Jesus more. I pray that grace would come out of my mouth. I pray, dear God, that you would fill my lips and my heart with grace. And I pray that for the congregation here today. I pray for men and women that need a changed heart. For daddies who have intimidated and scared their families, for mothers who cursed their children, I pray today a clean heart. I pray they'd be forgiven in the name of Jesus. And Father, I'm asking that you would do it. And we thank you for your grace, which saves us no matter how far away from you we are. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand to your feet. Brother Martin leads us in singing. While they're singing, you come right now. Don't you wait. If you've got a decision, don't you wait. You come. I'd like to thank Dr. Branch, at least I think I'd like to thank Dr. Branch and Dr. or Pastor Mark for this opportunity. I'm a little bit nervous. I wrote it down to try to keep it, keep it on track here, but um, I just feel like this morning, if I don't share this, that um, Jesus was telling some Pharisees uh, back in, in the Gospel of Luke that if the Pharisees were upset that the, uh, the people were praising praising Christ, and he said, he told the Pharisees, if they keep quiet, the, the stones are going to cry out. And that's a little bit what I feel like this morning. If I don't share what I've gone through that, I don't know, the building may collapse, uh, I don't know. So I just wanted to share a little bit of, about, about what I've been through, about what my family's been through. Um, December 5th of last year, um, I went to the doctor for what I thought was an infection that I couldn't kick. And about uh, two hours later, the hospital called and said, you need to get to the hospital quick. Um, and then a few hours after that, we found out that I had cancer. Um, life gets heavy really quick when you get cancer dropped in your lap. Um, part of me still doesn't even like saying the word, you know, I kind of whisper it, cancer. Um, that's something that happens to other people Not to me, um, but it was, it happened to me. And um, when you're facing cancer diagnosis, really you've only got two options. One, I could let fear and anxiety and worry take over, or I could give that cancer over to the Lord. And um, that's what I've tried to do. Uh, you freak out or give the outcome up to God. Um, one of my favorite preachers says that uh, to trust God in the light is nothing, but to trust him in the dark, that's faith. Uh, cancer is a really dark time. Your mind can go to really dark places. Um, in that hospital room, the first couple of nights, it went to some really dark places. I had some really 
difficult questions that I was asking God, you know, why me? Why us? Why now? I've got two young kids at home. What's going on? Um, the two questions that, that I really wrestled with the most was, you know, what about my family? What's going to happen to them? What's going to happen to my kids? Who's going to help my wife raise my kids if this doesn't turn out right? And, um, you know, why me? Why us? Um, but the thing is, the Lord could handle those questions. Um, he's big enough to handle those questions. Um, one passage that came to me really early on in my struggle with cancer was Second Chronicles chapter 20. Uh, yeah, of all places, Second Chronicles, but that's where I ended up in. And uh, if you read it, uh, the Moabites, the Amorites, a bunch of the ites are getting ready to invade Judah. And uh, chapter 20, verse 12, the king, everyone's, everyone's kind of freaking out. And verse 12 says, for we are powerless against this great horde that's come against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And that's what my family felt like. We didn't know what to do, but our eyes were on him this whole time. Um, and if you read, I encourage you to read that. Uh, go home and read that. They, they don't have to fight the battle. In verse 15, it, God tells them, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed at this great horde. For the battle's not yours, it's God's. And um, that's, this battle's not been mine, it's been God's. Um, I mean, there were times after that verse, after God showed me that verse, that I did get freaked out and panicked. Uh, Andy could tell you that. My dad could tell you that. Uh, other people could. But after, after reading that and just giving that over to God, this is your battle, God. This is yours. Uh, giving my, taking his yoke upon me and, and, and having that rest for my soul, there's been a real peace ever since then. Um, but back to my two big questions, you know, what about my kids? Um, you know, I'm, I wasn't done. I'm not done being a dad yet. I've got a lot of work to do. Um, you've seen my kids, you know. <laughs> um, they're so young, you know. And, and I really feel kind of guilty because I really wasn't too worried about Melissa because, you know, she's pretty young and she's still really attractive. She, you know, something happens to me, she's fine. But, but my kids, you know, what about my kids? Um, and God had to graciously remind me of two things. Number one, they're not your kids, dude. Uh, they're mine. They're on loan to you for a little while to raise them. They're not yours. They're mine. And number two, I love them more than you do. I already died for them. And church, you helped kind of hammer that point home as if the Holy Spirit wasn't enough. You guys kind of took it up 12 notches. I've had people literally almost fighting over who can watch my kids here at this church. Um, taking them out for ice cream and Christmas lights and pizza and Legos and Christmas time. Oh my goodness, Christmas time. We told them that Christmas was going to be small this year. No, Christmas was huge. Um, and then God used this point to drive it home even further. Uh, two of the Maddenly boys, the, the little twins, they, uh, they put, I'll try to say this without, without getting blubbery, but they put their loose change in, um, in a card and gave it to my kids and said, here, go out to, go out to McDonald's. Um, so God, God was showing through all this that I can take care of your kids. You can trust me with your kids. Um, but yeah, and, and I just wanted to take this time to, to thank you, church, to, to thank you for the manna from heaven, literally. It was like uh, Exodus in HD at home. We had food, like, showing up at our doorstep, literally falling from heaven, basically. Um, Melissa says I egged some of you ladies on by acting more sick than I really was. Um, <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe a little bit. Uh, Miss Judy's pies, I, I could probably use another one after this is over. <laughs> but the financial assistance, the babysitters, the taking my kids out for a day, gift cards, uh, taking me to appointments, movie tickets so my wife and I could have a date that didn't involve chemo. Um, you ask why, why did this happen to me? Well, I think that was part of the answer. If you look in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul said that he had received, felt like he received a death sentence and the church was praying for him. And he said in verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly pearl. He will deliver us, and we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. 
You must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Part of this cancer, I believe, was for you, church, for you to be there with me, with my family, to walk through that with us so that you could see on the other side how good God is. My other question, you know, well, kids, what about why? Why? I don't know why. Um, and you know what? God doesn't have to answer why. <laughs> He's not obligated to answer that question. Uh, he never answered that question for Job. He just showed himself to Job. And through all this, he's shown me that, yes, he is good. Yes, he can be trusted. Yes, he does care. Um, Melissa said, you know, that she's learned if it, if it goes well, God still loves us. If it goes bad, God still loves us. I've got a greater appreciation now for his word. His word is truth. His word is the only thing in this life that you have to hold on to. That's it. Um, if I was just trusting the chemo and the poison to take care of me, I'd, I don't know why. I mean, it's, it's, him, it's him. It's his word. A greater appreciation for his healing power. I believe that through your prayers and through the Lord and the treatments that I'm being healed, the cancer's gone. Um, all my plumbing still works. I'm good, right? I, I can still eat. Um, it's all good. I believe I'm healed, but even if God had not healed me, the greater miracle has already taken place. He's healed my soul. You know, he, he, told, he told the Pharisees and the scribes, he said, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Well, he's already done the, the, the more difficult thing. Um, so no matter what happened to me with his cancer, I had a peace with God that I knew where I was going. And um, I wanted to encourage you guys to, I've met people in my cancer journey, people who have cancer, that don't have that peace. They don't have that trust. They don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. It's our job to share that peace and that gospel with them, church. And then uh, maybe some of you today, I felt compelled to share this because maybe some of you are facing a big, hairy, scary, great horde, like we talked about in Second Chronicles. You don't know what to do, but turn your eyes on him. And turn your eyes on Jesus Look full in his face. The things of earth will grow strangely dim, even cancer, when you look at his face and turn your eyes to him. Thank you, church. Hey, come here, Brother James. Come here, Brother James. What a, I tell you what, uh, what a, if any of you know him, you know James. He's a man of God. And uh, we're grateful for him. Lord, I can't thank you enough for what you've done in James's life. I thank you for what he's taught me about walking with you through dark times. We pray for continued healing. We thank you for him and Melissa and his family, and we ask your grace on them. And all the church said, amen. amen. God bless you. I love you, man.